Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. Now think of that Harry Potter scene where they first learn to ride a broomstick at Hogwarts. Now you've got a pretty good idea now of what the University of Glasgow's quadrangle looks like. And in a moment I'll be going up one of its turrets for a glass of water. Later on there's news of the methane project in Edinburgh and we'll also be going in search of bats in Bristol. It's like a particularly grim episode of Spring Watch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, with uh, blank screens and presenters standing around twiddling their thumbs. Drinking a clear, cool glass of water is one of life's essential pleasures. But if you've ever turned on a tap and experienced brown water coming out, then you'll know that it's less than appealing. However, it's of definite interest to Professor Susan Walden in Glasgow University's Water and Sediment Lab. And that's where I am now. Susan, what causes that brown colour sometimes to come out of a tap? The brown colour occurs when there is a high concentration of dissolved organic carbon in the sample. And the higher the concentration of dissolved organic carbon, the the deeper the colour. And that dissolved organic carbon is coming from the soils that are in the catchment round about the drainage system. They break down and produce material that goes into solution. And then when we have movement of water from the catchment soils, such as under a rainfall event, we have movement of that carbon into the catchment water. Now you've got a, a couple of samples of, of water here, ranging in colour. Well, we've got a, a bottle of mineral water on the side there, so that's very clear. To, I suppose there's no way of putting this, there could be urine samples, I suppose. <laughs> well, we would like to think of them as closer to whiskey. <laughs> but yes, the darker the colour, the higher the concentration generally of dissolved organic carbon. And in river systems, we can see concentrations that can be up to 60 milligrams per litre carbon, and they can really be quite dark brown samples. So where were these particular samples come from? Are, they, are these from rivers around Glasgow area? These particular samples are from one of our study sites, which is a wind farm development where we're trying to better understand if there is an increase in the amount of carbon that's exported from the catchment soils into the rivers in response to either the wind farm being built or after the wind farm has been built. Has there been an increase in the amount of carbon and the brown water that you that you get nowadays within the uk there are quite a large group of scientists who understand very well the processes by which carbon is transmitted into catchment drainage systems and what they have observed is that there has been an increase in the amount of carbon that's going into water over europe the uk parts of north america um, and this has happened over quite a long time scale about 20 or 30 years there are multiple competing hypotheses for this, but the one that's most commonly accepted is that actually as we clean up our atmospheres and we reduce the amount of acid deposition that there is, it promotes the breakdown of organic material and produces this dissolved organic carbon that can then go into the river systems. So effectively, as, as the atmospheres become cleaner, the water can become browner. There are also, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't yep, it? Yep, but it's, it's sulphate deposition inhibited the production of dissolved organic carbon Sorry, what do you mean by that? Sulfate deposition is your acid rain. Okay, so as we clean up the um, acid deposition that's coming from large-scale industrial manufacturing, we're cleaning up the atmosphere and we're not depositing so much sulfate on our soils and we're increasing the amount of carbon that's being produced as dissolved organic carbon. Is it harmful? 
this water. If I, if I was to, to drink my brown, carbon-saturated water, would it be doing me any harm? Many people who have private water supplies do drink brown water. I'm not a medic, so I can't comment on whether there's a long-term impact of them drinking brown water, but my understanding is probably not. But water companies, I'm assuming, though, must, must spend extra money trying to make brown water clear. That's correct, because aesthetically people don't like to drink brown water. It looks dirty. We associate the brown colour with soils, and therefore we think that our waters are contaminated with soils. And, and it could be that if the water has not purified of the material that gives it the colour, it may not also be purified of other components. So this is understandably why people don't want to drink coloured water. So, so therefore the fact that our waters are becoming more coloured presents a problem for the water companies because they have to invest more in cleaning up the water. And they need to also understand how the carbon is arriving at their water purification plants. So is it coming in at a continuous low level that's just increasing or is it coming in in spikes? And can their equipment actually cope with this increasing carbon concentration if it comes in in a spike or not? And what are you sort of discovering so far? That land use change can affect the increase in carbon concentrations. We know well that there's a very strong hydrological response to movement of carbon into river systems and that there's a seasonal component as well. So we understand that at the end of the summer, when we've had higher productivity in the landscapes and then subsequent breakdown of this organic matter, and we're supposedly into a wetter period when the catchments start to wet up again in the autumn time when we have heavier rainfall, then that's when we have the largest amount of carbon moved into the catchment. But it's very interesting because we are potentially moving to a situation where we will have different levels of productivity as temperature regimes change. And as has been apparent um, over the past few months where we've had the wettest quarter since records began recently, the time period when water is being delivered to the catchment also changes. So what we don't understand yet is how carbon will be delivered to the catchment under a changing climate. And that's very important because the companies need to be able to understand better how to manage their resources and purify their water as best as possible. So we're taking our knowledge about what we know of the processes that generate carbon in the catchments, how it's delivered to the catchment, and then trying to understand how the changes might occur under projected climate change. Professor Susan Walden, thank you. You touched on wind farms there and we'll be reporting from a wind farm about the range of research associated with carbon and the environment in the autumn. Now, nights aren't as dark as they used to be as streetlights have transformed our towns, cities and even our countryside. But how have they affected wildlife? Emma Stone from the University of Bristol has been looking at the effects of streetlights on bats. So Richard Hollingham joined Emma in the centre of Bristol at dusk in the hope of finding some bats. But the evening didn't quite go as planned. We are along the feeder road, which is behind the train station, and we've got uh, one of the main rivers that runs through the centre of Bristol. And along this river, which is used quite a lot for fishing and boating, you also get quite a lot of bat activity during the summer. There's a number of roosts in the old warehouses that are used along the river, of mainly Pipstrails and Dorbentons. I have to say it's a fairly grim location. We're standing under a willow tree beside a fairly brown, murky river <laughs> in the rain with a road behind <laughs> yeah. us, both shivering slightly. But there are warehouses either side of the river here, and there are bats in here. Yes, there are, yeah. And the species that 
tend to sort of roost within central city locations. We'll always pick out the greenest, um, best areas to roost, which are close to foraging grounds. And riverways, even though they're in the centre, with these nice overhanging willow trees, do provide shelter for insects where the bats can come out and forage at night. The bat species that will roost along here, the pipistrelles, are very, very generalist species. They roost in pretty much anything. So they'll be quite happy in a building in the crack or crevice. The size of your thumb, you can get 50 to 100 bats in there. What's the fascination with bats? Because we don't often see them, but there are an awful lot around. Yeah, well, they're very, very interesting animals. And they use echolocation, which is fascinating. They also use vision. They're the most adapted flight. They're much better at flying than birds um, in terms of efficiency. They're highly manoeuvrable. I mean, there's so many things to like about bats. You're looking at bats and, and streetlights. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is look at whether the increasing numbers of streetlights and the new developments in technology are having negative impacts for bats, because obviously all our bats are protected in the UK and in European level. So what we're trying to do is just look at those species that might be negatively impacted by street lighting and understand what those impacts are and how best to mitigate them. Now you've been doing this research for some years now. What have you found so far? We've mainly focused on um, woodland-adapted species, so lesser horseshoe bat. We've also compared this with other species which are more dominant in the landscape, so pipistrelles, which are common ones. And what we've done is we um, did some experiments where we took standard streetlights out into the field along the flight routes of these bats and see how they responded. So you actually took streetlights to areas rather than just look at streetlights? Yeah, because most of the research so far has focused on existing lights and obviously they are only going to be having those bats around them that are able to cope with lighting or actually forage under streetlights because of the increased insects. But those species that maybe are negatively impacted, you're not going to be able to study if you look at existing streetlights. So we went to areas where there's woodland-adapted species. We know they forage there. We know they commute along those uh, linear features. And we took the lights to them and see how they respond. And we looked at the impacts of high-pressure sodium lights, which are well, previously the most dominant light type in the UK. They're the sort of orangey, orangey glow ones, the, the, the oldest ones. Yeah, they're not the really amber ones. They're the sort of pinkish, pinkish ambery ones. So we tested the impact of those on the commuting routes, the flyways of horseshoe bats, and found that they actively avoided them. So they wouldn't fly along their normal flight routes when the area was lit with high-pressure sodium lights. Now, sodium lights are the oldest ones. They are being phased out. You also looked at the, the new lights, the, the LED lights, which are, well, environmentally friendly in that they use less electricity. Yeah, so that was the next stage in the process, really, was to say, OK, well, these older lights, we know they have a negative effect. What about the, new, the way forward? What about these new technologies that they're bringing in that are sort of being promoted as green technology? Are they really green for, for biodiversity? So we brought LED lights out into the environment and did the same experiments and unfortunately we found the same negative impacts. So these bats also tend not to like LED lights either and will avoid lit areas with LED white lights. Well, as we've been talking, it has been getting darker and we are hopeful we will see some bats. It's also pretty much stopped raining. It's still a little bit of drizzle. It's not the warmest night though. No, it's not the warmest night and temperature will affect activity. Really, you don't want it to be any colder than six degrees and obviously you don't want heavy rain because the insects will then shelter in the vegetation. Now you've got a bat detector here. What is this actually going to detect, we hope? Well, hopefully, I've got a frequency, um, sorry, a heterodyne detector, which you tune to the individual bat species. So each bat species echolocates at different frequencies. So if you tune it to the right frequency, you can tell what bat you're listening to. And so what we'll do is we'll have a listen, see if we can pick up any pipistrelles. 
And pipistrelles, the most common species, we've got sopranos and common pipistrelles, two different species. And the most common ones echolocate at 45 kilohertz. So adjust the, uh, the box so there to 45. tuning it now to 45. Yeah. And the soprano pipistrelles echolocate slightly higher, hence the name soprano, and they echolocate at 55. Well, we've been here about half an hour now, and so far we have seen several seagulls a boat and many cars going behind us but still no bats but it is finally I think starting to get a bit darker now yeah yeah I think um you know in the next sort of 20 minutes or so you might start to get a few bats coming out yeah so we're just picking our way nothing at the moment <laughs> we're just picking our way very carefully alongside this canal it's fairly rough rough ground and a very narrow path so that would be the, the worst outcome of the evening would be falling in the river <laughs> Add some excitement, really. <laughs> <laughs> Almost did, actually. Bats have been doing strange things this season, actually. They've delayed a lot of the bats where we've been working this season at the roosts have delayed giving birth. And that's basically because we've had, had such bad weather in April. So they weren't able to benefit from good foraging opportunities. So they delayed and they've, they've not given birth as early as they normally would. It's like a particularly grim episode of Spring Watch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, with uh, blank screens and presenters standing around twiddling their thumbs. OK, so we've been here an hour now. Yeah. It's uh, Dusk has officially come and gone. Indeed. It's starting to get dark now and no bats. There are no bats, but I think if I was a bat, I would be staying in bed. I'm quite to agree, it's, it's really quite cold. Chilly. It's not exactly inviting out here, so, you know, if I was there, I'd be staying tucked up for a little bit longer. At least this is realistic, isn't it? I mean, this is what wildlife watching, wildlife listening is, is all about. You actually spend quite a lot of time standing around, yeah. nothing happening. Yeah, you do. You spend a lot of time being very bored, actually, not seeing a lot, and then you get those lovely genius moments and those little glimpses. And that's what you wait for. Um, but you can't guarantee it. You never know what's going to happen. Most of the animals don't read the textbooks. They do what they want. And you can never predict it. But that's the beauty of it, actually, because you never know what you're going to get from one day to the next. But unfortunately, we're just unlucky tonight. I was going to say tonight, yeah, nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing. But, um, you know, he pays your money, he takes a chance. You never know. Emma Stone with Richard Hollingham in the rain, in the centre of Bristol, without any bats. In 2006, it was discovered that plants produce significant amounts of the greenhouse gas methane. The research caused quite a stir at the time, and it forced scientists to rethink the role of plants and forests in global warming. One of the questions that needed answering was how plants emit methane. And so a research group at the University of Edinburgh set up the Methane Project. I went to meet Dr Andy McLeod at Edinburgh University School of Geosciences to find out more. The Methane Project is to investigate the mechanisms by which plant leaves can emit the greenhouse gas methane. So how do you go about doing that? Because I don't see many plants here in your laboratory. <laughs> well, there are no plants here now, but what we do is enclose the plant leaves inside chambers, and these chambers are specially constructed to transmit ultraviolet radiation, which you find in sunlight, and we use the chambers to determine what uh, gases are emitted, and that includes methane. So although scientists know that this process is happening, you know that methane is being produced by, by plants, albeit relatively recently, we still don't know how this methane is produced, and this is where your labs come in. 
Yeah, the purpose of the project uh, was to investigate the role that ultraviolet radiation may play in causing this methane emission. And it would seem that the ultraviolet radiation, when it impacts organic molecules within the leaf, can result in the, the release of methane into the atmosphere. Right, well, let's go through sort of how you actually go about doing that. We've got two labs, small labs off a corridor, side by side. Let's start with the quieter one inside. What goes on in here? In this lab, we have a very powerful xenon arc lamp, which uh, can produce very high levels of visible and ultraviolet radiation. That's just this little sort of black box here produce a, a huge blinding sort of white bit of light, I'm assuming. Yes, absolutely. We have to wear eye protection when we're using this. And we filter out the infrared radiation, which would heat up the leaves of the plants. We then filter out particular wavelengths of ultraviolet so that we can determine which wavelengths of ultraviolet are producing the effects we observe. Do you use any types of plant in particular, or is, it, is that irrelevant? The purpose of the project was to evaluate uh, a range of plant types to determine whether particular plant types uh, produce more methane on UV radiation compared to others. Our partners in the project are the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, where they have a large range of plant types in their collection which are made available to us for this investigation. Right, well, let's go to the next lab, which is a little bit noisier. Here we go. There's a big fan whirring at the end. We've got a, a bench with what looked like sort of kitchen fluorescent tubes of lighting um, above it, almost like a sort of sunbed, but with all sort of wiring and copper tubing and syringes beneath, not the sort of sunbed you'd want to actually lay on. No, it is in fact very like a sunbed, but the tubes used in, in this system produce very high levels of ultraviolet B radiation, which would actually give us a suntan far too quickly and be quite dangerous. <laughs> so you irradiate effectively the plants and then you simply attach some sort of a piece of equipment to, to the plant in order to measure the, the methane. We must be talking about very small amounts of methane here. Yes, uh, one of the problems is measuring the very small amounts of methane produced, and we do this in two different ways. When we have a closed chamber where there's no air flowing through it, we can transfer gas samples in a syringe to the gas chromatograph on the other side of the lab where the concentrations are measured. We also have a monitor uh, beneath the system here which gives us continuous measurements of methane if the gas is flowing through the chamber. And what stage are you at at the moment in terms of, of, of your project? This is the final stages of the project where we're completing uh, some of our measurements and we're analysing some of the chemical constituents of the leaves to see how they may be involved in the process. And at the end of it, what do you hope to gain? Obviously you, you want more of an insight into how the process works. Do you think you're at that stage of, of getting it? Do you know how this process works now? We're fairly confident that ultraviolet radiation does result in the production of methane and some other trace gases from plant leaves. In terms of quantifying how much that is, it seems that it is still a very small amount, making quite a small contribution to global emissions of methane into the atmosphere. So there are still other areas to be discovered in terms of how methane is produced by plants. There may indeed be other mechanisms and there are reports in the literature that physical damage causes the emission of methane from plant leaves and also other environmental stresses like high temperature. Recently on the Planet Earth podcast we featured a sort of unexpected result of your, your work which was that it was used by space scientists to examine meteorites. 
Yes, that's correct. Um, at a meeting with other scientists in Europe, we debated the possibility that ultraviolet radiation would contribute to the methane in the Martian atmosphere. And we therefore decided to do some experiments to investigate whether this might be true. We used samples of a, a, a meteorite called Murchison, which fell in Australia in 1969. And the substrate of this meteorite is very similar to what you would find on the surface of the planet Mars. We ground samples of this uh, meteorite up and then we irradiated them in equipment similar to the equipment you can see here. And again, we measured the methane that was produced. And sure enough? The samples produced methane on UV irradiation, sometimes much more than we found from substrates we've been studying in the study here. Dr Andy McLeod from the University of Edinburgh. The Planet Earth podcast was brought to you by the Natural Environment Research Council from the University of Glasgow. Do check out our Facebook page and Twitter feed. But until next time, thanks for listening.